Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head podcast with Jeffrey Hillard. Hillard is the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2015-2016 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity in our community and furthers the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here is Jeffrey Hillard. This February... 2016. I'm flying solo today, and today I'm going to share with you uh, four writers uh, to celebrate Black History Month, four African-American writers whom I believe are four of the most powerful writers I've come into contact with whose writing has mattered to me over the years. Uh, A couple of the writers uh, are fairly well known, and a couple may not be. And what I want to do is share a little background of each one and then read some from their works. And uh, first, I'm going to start off today with perhaps of the four, the most well known of all of them, and that would be the writer Edward P. Jones. Uh, Edward P. Jones in my mind, is probably the second most important African-American writer, fiction writer, certainly, uh, in the country, say, next to Toni Morrison. You have some wonderful, wonderful uh, African-American fiction writers, Jeffrey Renard Allen, uh, James Allen McPherson, of course. Uh, you have a number of others. Uh, you certainly, you certainly have the the older work of Zora Neale Hurston, uh, and I could go on. But Edward P. Jones resonates with me so interestingly, and I think it's primarily because I think of his stories as being really urgent. I don't think that anyone writing fiction now uh, captures the nuances of the inner city. Um, and urbanity in, in the same way that Edward P. Jones does. And Edward P. Jones was born and raised in Washington, D.C. He's the recipient of a Lannan Foundation grant. He was, he was educated at Holy Cross College and the University of Virginia. His book of stories, from which I'll read an excerpt right now in a minute, it Lost in the City, that one the Penn Hemingway Award, and was nominated for the National Book Award, and it was a finalist for the National Book Award. His debut novel, The Known World, was published in 2003, and that novel won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2003. Uh, He's also the author of a collection of stories, a follow-up set of stories to Lost in the City called All Aunt Hogger's all Aunt Hagar's children. Uh, And that also is a phenomenal book. Uh, Edward P. Jones really strikes me as being so important on three fronts as a fiction writer. First of all, his characterization. Uh, He can strike at a character's disposition, attitude, physical appearance, Um, persona almost as quickly as any writer living right now. And he makes you see into their actions and into their soul 
virtually within a sentence or two after he begins to create them. He can create a character of any age, age range. His touch with creating young women characters is just as endearing as it is when he creates an older character, a senior citizen. He creates fathers. He creates grandmothers, uh, young kids, thugs, pimps, hustlers, uh, city officials, school teachers, uh, working mothers, all with extraordinary flourish. He only has three books of fiction. That's it. And he didn't start writing until later in life. And it just shows you the prominence of his talent, the way that critics and reviewers have embraced his work, so much so that he has a National Book Award finalist entry at a Penn, Falk a Penn Faulkner Award and a Pulitzer Prize within the realm of three books. That gives you some insight into his talent. Secondly, his settings. His setting of Washington, D.C. is unlike anyone else. Uh, it's captured unlike anyone else. I believe that no one writing has captured the inner city with the same force and magnitude that Edward P. Jones has captured Washington, D.C. And the amazing thing about that is that inner city of D.C. that Jones captures could be the inner city of virtually any large city in this country. It doesn't have to just be D.C. It could be downtown. It could be East St. Louis. Uh, it could be Baltimore. Uh, it could be Cincinnati. It, it could be um, Miami, Florida. It, it's, the same, it's the same arc of importance and development uh, that he would give any city. It's just so that everything is kind of encap um, so much is encapsulated in the environs of Washington, D.C. that makes it so resolute. Uh, and thirdly, the last thing is his language. His language and the, the way he structures his sentences and has and his culminated in, in an amazing voice. His, his voice is smooth and yet bold and blunt. He's able to operate almost with the eye of a poet in some language of, of a poet, as you'll hear in a minute. And also he can pick up the, the rhythms of street language. His characters embody a kind of language, a slang that is not trite, but very direct and, and very moving, extremely moving. I'm going to read excerpts from two stories today brief excerpts, and one excerpt is from a, the story that begins his volume, Lost in the City, and that story is called The Girl Who Raised Pigeons. It's a wonderful story, um, and it deals with a young lady, <coughs> a teenager named Betsy Ann, and it's a father-daughter story, uh, and it's one of the most touching father-daughter stories I've ever read. Robert, her father, is a single father. Her mother's passed away. And basically, the girl who raised pigeons deals with Betsy Ann as a protagonist and how she navigates her young life in inner city D.C. 
and it uh, goes through a number of years. It follows a trail of a number of years from Betsy Ann at the time she was 9, 10 to the time when she's a teenager, a young adult, and some of the things and uh, some of the travails that she goes through. In this passage that I'm going to read right now, this is from about the middle of the story, and I'm reading this uh, for you to see the kind of language that he uses and how rich and abundantly lyrical it is. So this is just after, uh, this is is very young in her life, and uh, I'll just start here in this story, The Girl Who Raised Pigeons. Sometimes when the weather allowed, the girl, Betsy Ann, would sit on the roof plaiting her hair or reading the funny papers before school or sit doing her homework in the late afternoon before going down to Miss Jenny's or out to play. She got pleasure just from the mere presence of pigeons, a pleasure that was akin to what she felt when she followed her Aunt Thelma around her house, or when she jumped double dutch for so long she had to drop to the ground to catch her breath. In the morning, the new sun rising higher, she would place her chair at the roof's edge. She could look down at the tail-wagging Bosco, looking up at her, down through the thick rope fence around the roof that Robert had put up when she was a year old. She would hum or sing some nonsense song she'd made up as the birds strutted and pecked and preened and flapped about in the bath water. And in the evening, she watched the pigeons return home, first landing in the oak tree, then over the co- to the coop's landing board. A few of them, generally the males, would settle on her book or on her head and shoulders. Stroking the breast of one, she would be rewarded with a cooing that was as pleasurable as music. And when the bird edged nearer so that it was less than an inch away, She smelled what seemed a mixture of dirt and rainy air and heard a a heart that seemed to be hurling itself against the wall of the bird's breast. She turned ten. She turned eleven. That's a phenomenal passage. That gives you an example of this, the richness of Jones's language. Another passage I'm going to read... um, is from his story, The Night Rhonda Ferguson Was Killed. And this is a story about a group of teenage girls. And the protagonist of the story is a, is a pretty uh, rebellious young lady named Cassandra. And I'm going to pick up here and let you listen to how Edward P. Jones deals with, this, deals with the characters of these young girls and how he nails it especially Cassandra. She's feisty. She's Andre. She's an in-your-face character. She's kind of the ringleader of these these group of girls right here. And um, they're all kind of getting a little uh, frustrated with one another right now. So this is uh, where Cassandra comes in, of course, as a ringleader. You know, Cassandra said, I'm tired of all your talk about somebody being cute all the time. You getting on my nerves with all that. You sound like a damn cuckoo clock with just one tune. 
For the next two blocks or so, she pounded on the horn and rocked her head in exasperation. You know how many girls put on their panties and give up the booty just because some boy is cute? Just because some boy has some good hair? Just because somebody has the best rap in the whole damn world? And you, hey, you, leader of them all, Melanie, Melanie. Melanie slumped back in her seat. That's why nothing ain't right no more. Cassandra continued, because some dumb bitch like you think this guy and this guy here is so cute. Get some brains, girl. I get so sick and tired of you. I didn't mean anything by it, Cassandra, Melanie said. That's your trouble. You never mean anything by it. She turned around and looked at Melanie. And if you had any sense, you dumped that Dwayne. He's the dumbest thing in the whole world. But you be playing, but you be playing for 89 kinds of fool. But you don't see that. He's so cute. Stop the car, Melanie said calmly. Stop the car right now. I want to get out. Melanie began jerking on the door handle. Stop the car, I said. Stop it. Don't tell me what to do, Cassandra said. Nobody tells me what to do. I really want to get out, Cassandra, Melanie said, moving the handle up and down. Why do you hate me so much? Why have I ever done in my whole life to make you hate me so much? She began to cry. What harm did I ever do you? That's what I want to know. Why are you against me just because I'm in love with Dwayne? What bad thing I ever do to you in my whole life, Cassandra? Melanie got the door open and Cassandra braked. Melanie stumbled out into the street and made her way to the sidewalk. Anita and Gladys followed her. Melanie, first thinking it was Cassandra, pushed Gladys when she put her arm around her shoulder. Anita walked on the other side. Cassandra followed them slowly in the car as the three went down 8th Street. She could not hear what they were saying, but she could see Melanie shaking her head, saying, No, no, no. Well, you can you can tell right there that Edward Jones' range as a fiction writer is so extraordinary. He can go from the quiet, melodic passages and drum up descriptive pleasures to the very almost enraged sort of prose to really isolate and uh, capture, in this case, these four girls, especially Cassandra and Mel Melanie. So that's from Lost in the City by Edward P. Jones. My next writer that I'm going to feature today is a wonderful poet, tremendous poet. And she relatively, although she has a number of books, I would say she's rather unknown and should be far more known for her work. I first came upon her uh, when she published in our former Cincinnati Poetry Review, uh, of which for many years I was assistant editor and editor here in Cincinnati. Uh, along with uh, editor and publisher Dallas Wiebe, the late Dallas Wiebe. And this is a poet that we were both very fond of for many years, and we published many of her poems. And her name is Colleen J. McElroy. Colleen J. McElroy was born in St. Louis, Missouri, to a military family that moved often. She earned a Ph.D. in Ethnolinguistic Patterns of Dialect Differences in Oral Traditions from the University of Washington. 
Colleen McElroy's written short stories, plays, TV scripts, and nonfiction. Her collections of poetry include Winters Without Snow, 1979, Queen of the Ebony Isles, 1984, and winner of the American Book Award from the Before Columbus Foundation. What Madness Brought Me Here, New and Selected Poems, 1968 to 1988, published in 1990. Traveling Music, 1998. And Sleeping with the Moon, 2007. That won the 2008 Penn Oakland National Literary Award. Colleen McElroy started writing intensely in her 30s. In an article for Seattle Women Magazine, she attributed her awareness of language to her training in speech pathology. McElroy's work is influenced by her extensive travels, the landscape of the Pacific Northwest where she lives, and the experience of African-American women. Her books of nonfiction include a travel memoir, A Long Way from St. Louis, 1997, Over the Lip of the World, Among the Storytellers of Madagascar, 2001. She was director of speech and hearing services at Western Washington University before becoming a professor of English and creative writing at the University of Washington. She edited the Seattle Review from 1995 to, 19, to 2006. Her awards include grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, a Rockefeller Fellowship, and a Fulbright Creative Writing Fellowship. And again, Colleen J. McElroy was always one of our favorite poets submitting work at Cincinnati Poetry Review. And I got that information that I just read from the Poetry Foundation website. So thanks to them. I'm going to read a poem of Colleen's that appeared in Cincinnati Poetry Review, number six, the fall issue. And this was in 1979. It's called Biography, 1936 to war's end. First, it was the gunboats, the occasional bursts of small arms fire, then jets and choppers, and those awful supermarket women squawking like magpies, and the fields littered with grim-faced farmers wondering how a woman could know so much. They called me names, Lady of the Inferno, woman of dragon's tongue, black witch of the Orient, and on every horizon I found a line of pilots and pirates waiting to trail me for a buck and a quarter. I just grew weary of the whole game, pulled on my boots, and marched right out front where I could face them. In no time at all had their attention, maybe because I stood there, sleek in my black cape and ruby-red fingernails, ready for action. I told them, Hong Kong or St. Louis, it's all the same. They said ladies like me are no longer needed. Be feminine, they say. They say peace will come soon. They say tomorrow marks the end of the century. I hear the battle drawing nearer. That's Colleen J. McElroy. The next writer I want to, to uh, highlight is uh, a young African-American writer whom we lost way, way too early. Um, 
and his name is Christopher Gilbert. Christopher Gilbert was born in 1949. His book, Across the Mutual Landscape, won the 1983 Walt Whitman Award. He worked as a psychotherapist and teacher of psychology until his death in 2007. And in his book, Turning Into Dwelling, uh, that was um, produced by, published by Grey Wolf Poetry Series, uh, there's an introduction by Terence Hayes, who won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a Pulitzer Prize winner. And let me read a snippet of what Terence Hayes writes about Christopher Gilbert. He was absolutely a star. And uh, his tragic and, uh, and, and early death certainly cast a pall over poetry because you had someone here who was, you could consider, certainly up and coming. He, he had arrived, but still he had so much to write. Uh, and he was quite, quite po- prolific in his young life. But this is from Terrence Hayes' introduction. Hayes writes, I am still, despite countless readings these last years, being introduced to Christopher Gilbert and his selves. He died at the young age of 57 on July 5, 2007, in Providence, Rhode Island. Grey Wolf published Across the Mutual Landscape when Michael S. Harper selected it for the 1983 Walt Whitman Award. Harper was one of the first poets I emailed in 2010 to ask about Gilbert. Michael Harper told me Gilbert had died of an inherited kidney problem. That is an undergraduate he'd studied with Robert Hayden at the University of Michigan. Part of me wonders how much Gilbert was shaped by his relationships with Hayden, Harper, and Etheridge Knight. Christopher Gilbert, born in Alabama, was, like Etheridge Knight, a Southern transplant. Gilbert, like Hayden, was raised in industrial Michigan. Gilbert, like Michael Harper, lived much of his adult life in Providence, Rhode Island. While Christopher Gilbert melds the poetics of an austere formalist, a radical jazzman, and a restless bluesman, his work is altogether original, indeterminate, and boundless. Michael Harper said he dedicated part of his 1998 Frost Medal Lecture to Christopher Gilbert and read one of his poems for remembrance. Most of us should have remembered him when he lived. We would not need so soon to recover him now. That's Michael S. That's uh, Terrence Hayes writing in his introduction to Turning into Dwelling. I'm going to read a Christopher Hayes poem called Time with Stevie Wonder in it. Time with Stevie Wonder in it. Winter, the empty air, outside cold shaking its rigid tongue, announcing itself like something stone, spit out, which is still a story and a voice to be embraced. January movements, but I hear a tune carries me home to Lansing. Always waiting for signs of fall, dark nomads getting covered by snow, our parents would group in the long night 
tune frequencies to the black stations blasting out of Memphis, Nashville, still playing what was played down south, Ray Charles, Charles Brown, Ruth Brown, Muddy, and Wolf. The tribal families driven north to neighborhoods stacked the boxes. To work the auto plants was progress. To pour steel would buy a car to drive hope further down the road. How could you touch, hear, or be alive? How could anybody wearing our habits, quite Protestant heads, aimed up to some future? This was our rule following. Buy a J.C. Penney's in Woolworths, work at Diamond Rio, Oldsmobile, Fisher Body. On Fridays, drink, dance, and try to forget the perverse comfort of huddling in what was done to survive. The buffering, the forgetting. How could we not turn the head, pretend not to see? This is what we saw. Hope screwed to steel flesh. This was machine city and the wind through it, neutral to an extent, private, and above all, perfectly European language in which we would not touch, hear, or be alive. How could anybody be singing fingertips? Little Stevie Wonder on my crystal, 1963. Blind boy goes, blind boy comes to go to school, the airways politely segregated. If this were just a poem, there would be a timelessness. The punch clock Midwest would go on ticking. The intervals between ticks, metaphor for the gap in our lives. And in that language, which would not carry itself beyond indifferent consequences. The beauty of the word, though, is the difference between language and the telling made through use. Dance Motown on the lip, he lays these radio tracks across the synapse of snow. The crystals show a future happening with you in it. That's Christopher Gilbert, brilliant, brilliant poet um, who died at the age of 57. My last writer today that I'm going to feature in the podcast is Cincinnati's own Kathy Y. Wilson. And Kathy was our first writer-in-residence of the Library Foundation. And I'm very fortunate and blessed to have succeeded Kathy in this role. Kathy is not only a longtime friend, but she's an extraordinary writer and one of my favorite writers. Um, and I read her constantly. Go back to her first book, your Negro Tour Guide, Trues in Black and White, which was published in 2004. And I continue to read her columns in City Beat. She's also a wonderful poet. But let me also give you a little bit of background on Kathy. Kathy felt first the desire to write at age five, wandering the stacks of her neighborhood library. I knew the alphabet, she said. And I'd stand up in those stacks and try and figure out where Wilson would go. I knew where the W's were, and I would imagine where my book would be. The library is the great equalizer of this community. I am so honored to represent this institution, she said. And this was when she received the writer-in-residence role. 
Wilson describes herself as a, quote, a multi-hyphenated black nerd, unquote. Born in Hamilton, Ohio, Wilson is the author of Your Negro Tour Guide, adapted from her City Beat column of the same name and published in 2004. The book became a one-woman multimedia monologue for the stage and has been performed in New York City on college campuses in Georgia, Kentucky, Connecticut, New York, and at Cincinnati's Playhouse in the Park and Ensemble Theater. She's also co-authored, she's also authored a collection of poetry titled True Grits, a short stack on food and family in Over the Rhine, published in 2006. Wilson, at, the, at that time um, that this was wrote, was a contributing senior editor at Cincinnati Magazine, and she is a University of Cincinnati adjunct instructor in women's studies and journalism. She has served as a professional writing mentor in the Cincinnati Gifted Academy of Cincinnati Public Schools and was a contributor of commentaries for All Things Considered on National Public Radio. The Cleveland Press Club and Associated Press Society of Ohio. Uh, she was twice n named as Fellow of the Knight Center for Professional Journalists at the University of Maryland and was a finalist for a National Book Award for her profile of radio talk show host Bill Cunningham. Kathy did so much as her first writer in residence and uh, she especially worked with youth in this city, which uh, brings so much uh, to my mind. It was so important. I'm going to read this excerpt out of Your Negro Tour Guide. And it's, it takes place, it's called What's in a Name? And the, it, it shows how brilliant Kathy's eye is, not only her writing, but her eye. She pays attention to her surroundings and she pays attention to what is said. And I'm going to read an excerpt out of what's in a name and in this in this excerpt um, she and her friends are eating at the Queensgate Frishes and there's a waitress named Pooh and um, I'll let Kathy's prose take it from here so here came Pooh to take our orders barely occupied when we came in the restaurant too filled up they said it was going to pick up but not till after six o'clock Pooh said already dirty and exasperated only five minutes into her shift. Yeah, they got the Reds game and the Bengals playing, Kids Fest and Black Fest and all downtown. What? We raised our eyebrows. Black Fest? Hmm. Being black in Cincinnati means never having to say, I know you. Know what I mean? No? Black Cincinnatians are slightly paranoid about our identities because we're identified by the events that cater to us, how we respond to police treatment, and finally, by where we reside. And regardless of zip code identity, our blackness forces us to overcompensate. In doing so, we're constantly wondering if we're being disrespected. The least this white girl could do is get the name right of one of our festivals. I bet either of us could tick off one of her festivals. It's silly, but this is how we get down. We waited for Pooh to get herself together. We pretended we didn't hear her so badly mispronounce the Black Family Reunion that she boiled it down to a name closer to a dashiki, an Afro pick party, Black Fest. It was just lazy. It was just disrespectful. It was just wrong. 
It was like being called Jackie repeatedly when I know I'd enunciated Kathy. K-A-T-H-Y. But you know how that goes. Whenever someone says something so wrong, chances are they'll repeat it with certainty. So we made small talk, something like, yeah, there's going, there's a lot going on today. And sure enough, Pooh ran down the list again, landing lastly on Blackfest. Speaking for everyone, as I usually do, I said, when you say Blackfest, do you mean the Black Family Reunion? It's Black Family Reunion. My friends chimed in. It's Black Family Reunion. Where'd you get Blackfest from? It wasn't an attack, just a correction. Pooh threw up one chubby white hand ordering Pat in the other. That's what they told me in the back. That's what they That's what they told me in the back. That's what they told me in the back. She ran her words together like she was declaring her innocence. It was no big deal, really. Just telling. Here we'd come from the city's most celebrated and well-attended black-specific event, second only in instant name recognition to the Jazz Fest, and Pooh just messed over the name. I think it was the culture shock for all of us. That's from Kathy Y. Wilson's uh, excerpt column, excerpt from her column. In the book, uh, it was called What's in a Name, and that was from your Negro Tour Guide. Truths in Black and White. Thank you to Kathy. Thank you to Edward P. Jones, to the late Christopher Gilbert, to Colleen J. McElroy for their incredible writing and for what they leave us. So I hope that I've enlightened readers and I hope I've energized writers. And uh, we'll talk to you next month. Thank you. You've been listening to Inside the Writer's Head podcast with Jeffrey Hillert, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2015-2016 Writer-in-Residence. This podcast was recorded in the library's Makerspace. Use the Makerspace yourself at the main library or at the Reading and St. Bernard Branch Libraries. The podcast was mixed by Adam Baker. Special thanks to Kimber L. Fender, Sandy Bullock, Missy Dieters, Kate Lawrence, and Chris Rice and to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. Also, thanks to the band Amphibians for providing the song Sharkbait for this podcast. Learn more about the Writer-in-Residence and related events on our website, cincinnatilibrary.org. There you can also read our Inside the Writer's Head blog and comment about this podcast. Be sure to join us again next month for another Inside the Writer's Head podcast.